0: several selections uh, from throughout the first chapter of Judges after the death of Joshua the Israelites asked the Lord who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites the Lord answered Judah shall go up I have given the land into their hands the men of Judah then said to the Simeonites their fellow Israelites come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites we in turn will go with you into yours so the Simeonites went with them The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anah. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites, who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Ibniam or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. The judges, selections of chapter 1. Canaan's going to come up. And please, let us look this way.
1: Thanks, Joanna. Let's give her a hand. She just like rattled off those, uh, those locations and people groups and without stuttering. Like that was amazing. Like that was better than I'm going to do for the rest of the sermon. So thank you for that. Uh, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good, good. So glad to be with you all. Uh, today, My name's Kenny. If we haven't met, hope to meet you at some point today. Um, we're going to be in the book of Judges, so if you have a Bible and want to turn there, um, go ahead, turn to Judges 1. Um, if you need a Bible, there's one here. It'll also be on the screen. And uh, I uh, am particularly happy to have a, a certain visitor here today. My brother is here all the way from Arkansas, my older brother Wally. And uh, so he wins the award for longest commute to a Sunday Morning, you guys have no excuse. People are coming here from Arkansas. From What's that?
2: Ooh,
1: Florida. Okay, that's a little bit further.
2: Australia.
1: Australia. Okay. Okay. Sorry, Wally. You have to. You have to try harder. Man, we have just become like an international church right now. Um, man, it's so good to be with you all today. Um, sometimes, sometimes. On my way here on Sunday mornings, on my way to Roosevelt, uh, if I'm not running late, um, and I have time, I make a special visit um, that my wife Hannah doesn't know about, and it's to the uh, donut shop on the corner,
2: <laughs>
1: right next to the freeway before I get on and come here, and uh, I don't even, it's just really nice, it's really good, and uh, I don't even know the name of the it just says donuts. You know, it's just like donuts. And I get there and I don't even know the name of the donut that I get, but I always get it. It's like that old fashioned, but it's, they've like cut it in three and it's got crust everywhere. And sugary goodness. And, um, lunch is going to be later. But, um, when I was there the other day and I was paying for my donut and I looked down and, uh, they kind of on the floor right by the register. There's a, uh, kind of an offering of little donut holes and coffee cups and it's to a little Buddha, right? And a few other little gods there and candles are going and I'm kind of in my mind, I'm like, okay, is this, been, you know, the like New Testament talks about don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, right? And I'm like, does that count for donuts? You know, um, I don't know. Yeah. The Bible says meat. This is donuts, right? There's no meat in this. And, um, but just the reality is that we live and work um, surrounded by all types of gods, um, and not just the gods of other formal religions, I mean the gods that are uh, cultural gods and our personal gods that are worshiped in our culture, so whether it 's the God the gods of wealth or the gods of celebrity or the gods of achievement i 'm going to be something or be somebody or, um, but it 's the god of a certain ideology where everything in my life kind of bends its way towards that uh, ideology. and uh, It's interesting because the book of Judges ends with the fr- this phrase. It says, uh, in, that, in that time in Israel, there was no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Or everyone did as they, as they saw right in their own eyes. And even though that book was written over 3,000 years ago, you could use that phrase for our day. Everyone's kind of going after their gods, and I and, I mean, I think it's not even though Christians saying we serve the one true God, I think we also have those um, uh, times where we wrestle and struggle with the gods of our day. And uh, there's an interesting quote I wanted to share with you, um, someone uh, named Rebecca Manley Pippert. Um, And the quote says this, uh, whatever controls us is really our God. I think I have it up here. Yeah, yeah. Whatever controls us is really our God. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks, before I go any further, if, you're, if, if power is your God, you'll do anything it takes to get power. Right? Anyone seen House of Cards? <laughs> right? Confession right there. Right? But that's power, right? Power hungry. Anything to get power, right? The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. And so it's striking to me that even though we're reading Judges and it tells it's a historical account of uh, God's people, Israel, after they've been brought out of slavery um, in Egypt with Moses and Joshua led them into the promised land and, and but before, So it's after that time and they're in the promised land, but it's before the time where they have a king and a unified kingdom with, with Saul and David um, that they wrestle with similar things. It's different, but similar, right? That there's spiritual pluralism, that there's different gods throughout the whole region. Um, and so we have this story of God's called them to worship him alone. Hear, Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength right? But they're living in a culture that worships all these other gods and he's called them to worship him alone. And he's called them to show the world what he's like. And yet we've got this story where, um, if you read it, it's typically, it's basically the story of them failing (laughs) miserably. It's like face palm after face palm, like every chapter, like what is going on here? And, uh, if you, even the heroes, the judges are the ones that kind of God raises up and, uh, empowers them to kind of set their people uh, free when they when they're being uh, imprisoned um, or oppressed by the other uh, peoples around and the other uh, gods that are there. But even the judges that come up, they're not even like really like heroes. They're more kind of like anti heroes. Um, if anyone reads comic books, you know it's like they're not really like Superman where you know he's always going to do the right thing. You know it's more like Wolverine. You know where it's like. He's probably going to do the right thing, but I definitely know it's going to be violent. Like, that's, that's most of the book, right? And the end is kind of depressing, but we can like read this and be like, why is this even in the Bible? <laughs> well, I thought I was supposed to be encouraged when I read this. And I, I think it's vital in why we're doing this series is because it points us to the gospel. The whole book points us to the gospel that um, we don't just need a hero. We need a savior. We don't need a flawed hero. There's only one hero in this whole book. It's God. He's divine. And we see this story of, of a loving, faithful God rescuing and going after and pursuing a people when they're not loving and they're not faithful. You know, and I'm encouraged by this because some people think the Bible is just a book of virtues, right? It's supposed to be inspirational, moral heroes that we follow. And you're not going to find that in this particular book of Judges. But you are going to find this God who loves us in radical ways. And so um, just like them, we have that struggle of we're called to worship the one God. But we've got all these other options and all these other distractions. And every day we wake up, are we going to worship God with our whole hearts? or Are we going to be distracted by the spirit of the age and the preferences of our time? How are we going to be the faithful people of God as he's called us to be? And uh, I'm so glad that you guys asked that question because um, I prepared a message to answer that question. So, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's start out with that. I, the rest of my comments – pardon me, I need some coffee. The rest of my comments are going to be kind of phrased around uh, – chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 of Judges where the Israelites kind of give their perspective and then God gives them a confrontation um, with his perspective and then and then kind of a quandary. So we'll, we'll get that way. Alright, everyone ready? Cool. Alright, so Judges 1 starts out looking backwards to Joshua. The first phrase actually says uh, after the death of Joshua the Israelites asked the Lord um, who should go up to battle first. And um, Joshua was, and some of you, I realize some of you guys know this, you grew up in Sunday school and you've seen the flannel graph, and others of you don't. So, just real quick version of who Joshua was. Um, the, you know, the children of Israel were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Longer than the United States has been a nation. That's how long they were in slavery. That was part of their identity. And yet, God had already called them and said, you're going to be my people. I'm going to send to deliver, and he sends Moses. Right? So, within one generation... They go from being slaves to being a nation. But they don't have a place yet. They're in the wilderness. And God had already promised them hundreds of years earlier, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. And then he leads them into the promised land. And Moses didn't even make it because he wasn't faithful. But you know who was? Joshua. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua's those two are the only ones who made it out of Egypt and all the way into the promised land. right? Joshua leads them in. And they have this mandate to break down the altars. Of the other gods. And so they, they, they're doing that. They're going to battle. And then Joshua. I mean he, he gets old and then he dies. And he has to pass on the mantle. But there's not a designated leader. And so we show up to judges. And the people of God know what their job is. To break down the other altars. That are opposed to God. And to, and to live faithfully for him. And to be a, a nation that honors God and shows the whole world what God is like. Everyone tracking so far? Yeah, yeah. From, the, from the beginning, God had said, I'm gonna bless you, but I'm gonna bless all the nations of the world through you, right? So this is God's heart. And so we have this story that Joanna um, just did an amazing job reading and not mispronouncing anything. And, uh, but you see Israel and they say, okay, well, who's, gonna, who's going to battle first? And the Lord says, Judah. And then um, they just obey perfectly, right? No, it's who should go up. The Lord said Judah and they said and Judah's like, OK, Simeon, come with us. <laughs> their, their, their brother tribe. It's like, OK, you're supposed to go up. OK, yeah, I'll go. Hey, come with
2: us. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Those guys are big and bad. We got to we need we need some backup. Right. So from the beginning and then it, it just kind of goes from there. God gives them something. And what you see in this whole first chapter is that they're faithful to God, but they're also flawed in the way that they're following because he's very clear in giving them instructions and in what he's calling them to do and they're very kind of halfway in doing it. And then what you find is, as we go down further is that, you know, they kind of get some successes and whatever it may be, but but then story after story it goes neither this tribe nor this tribe, neither this tribe nor this tribe. There's only 12 tribes and it goes through 9 of them. And all of them it says, well, you know, they went to battle but they couldn't Drive this out, and so the people were—they're there, living together, they're wor- worshipping this God next, to, right next to where God had said is the promised land. And then the next one says, "Well, they went to battle, but they couldn't do it because they had iron chariots, and Judah didn't." And then one of them it just says, "They went to battle, but the people were really determined, <laughs> so you know they wanted it more, <laughs> right? So they get there." But, and what, you, what you're seeing here is you're reading this whole first chapter. It's like, well, we tried to do this, but we couldn't. And it's, it kind of reads like Israel's own press releases on their failed campaign, right? Like, hey, you know, we put up a good effort, but, um, you know, this this and this happened, and so we didn't obey at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, complete uh, kind of failure. But we all tried, so um, all of you guys get a participation trophy. And... Uh, um, that was not a jab at participation trophies. Sometimes we need those, right? Um, but we get that whole kind of view on chapter one, and then when we come to chapter two, it's kind of jarring because all of a sudden we get God's perspective on the same events. So how many knows we? How many We, we have our own understanding of the events in our lives, <laughs> and then there's God's understanding. Of the events in our life. And we, don't, we may think we see the picture, but we don't fully see the picture until we get God's understanding. So I want to read chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 5, and, and then kind of go through how, how God interacted with them. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bokan and said, I brought you out of, up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud. And they called that place Bokum, which means weepers. And there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So there's this confrontation that happens here when it says that the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal and went to Bokum to speak to them. So first of all, the angel of the Lord. And again, some of you guys know this, some of you don't. But the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is kind of mysterious, but it's the short way of saying it is God's way of interacting with his people as directly as possible. And so when you see the angel of the Lord speaking in the Old Testament, that's, that's the angel is speaking for God. right? So God comes to speak to them about their failed attempts. And then it says that he came up from Gilgal. And the reason it says Gilgal is because that's where God's summer home is. And he just lives there. <laughs> and then he wanted to go visit. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was... <laughs> No, so why, why, why does he even say, does God live in Gilgal? Like, why? it's fun to say, but I don't know anything about him. He just lives in this town in the ancient Near East. No, it says he came from Gilgal. Here's the significance of Gilgal. If you look at Joshua, the book ahead, here's what happened at Gilgal. The people made a covenant with God. And God, the Lord said, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And Gilgal means to roll. He's saying, you were slaves for 400 years and that stain is not part of your identity. You are my people. I've brought you out of Egypt. I've sustained you for 40 years when you had no food and water. I've given you grace upon grace even though you didn't ask for it and you definitely don't deserve it. (laughs) And yet I have loved you and I've called you and I've given you a new name and that reproach of Egypt, I have rolled it. Away. And that happened at Gilgal. So when God is coming to them from Gilgal, and we're reading the scriptures, we're being reminded God is a God of grace. Amen? Amen? God is a God who is a redeemer, who not only accepts our past, but rearranges it and redeems it. And rewrites it. He's a God who makes a covenant. He's a God who always keeps his promises. Right, So the angel of the Lord comes from Gilgal. And it's this reminder of the goodness and how amazing God has been to us. And he comes to Bochum to speak, of, speak to them. And the Israelites have said, you know, we tried, but we just can't. They're stronger than us. They're more determined. We just can't do it. And God says this, you know, good job. That was really hard. You know? No, he doesn't do that. He says, you disobeyed me. Why have you done this? He comes to them them and says, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I made a covenant with you. I'll never break it. And yet you disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And it's almost like God is asking that question. Okay, you you can't or you won't. You know what I called you to do. You you can't do it or you're not choosing not to do it. And I know that sounds harsh, but uh, there's a reason God can say that, right? The, the one thing is, a lot of times, when God calls us to obedience, it's going to go against common sense. Does anyone know that? Sometimes it goes against common sense. And sometimes we read those excuses they had and say, well, yeah, I mean, they had iron chariots. And we didn't have any. What? Of course, right? But when God calls us to obey something, he doesn't call us to do it in our strength. He calls us to do it with faith in His strength, right? And it, it, the whole thing is, He said, "This is the Promised Land, not the Maybe Land, right? Yeah. Not Neverland, right? This is the Promised Land. I have given it to you. I am with you. I mean, we've got times in the Old Testament where He tells them to go into battle with like clay pots and a trumpet, yeah. and they won." Yeah. Right? Because God fought for them. So that's why God can say you won't or you can't. I've asked you to do something hard and it goes against your common sense and it's totally different from what everyone else around you is doing. But you're telling me you can't do it when you can't. I've called you to do it. And God can do this because he deserves lordship of our whole lives. Not just part of it. Because if he is who he says he is, if he's the creator, if he's our maker, if we're made in the image of God, if we know what love is because God is love, then he deserves every part of our lives. Not everything except this other part here that I'm struggling to obey in. Is that all right? It's getting uncomfortable in here. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. So God God wants lordship over uh, the whole promised land because he deserves it, but also because he knows what's best for us. If we're going to serve God with our whole heart, there's no room in our lives for idols. Because idols will enslave you. Only when you're serving God are you truly going to be free. But when you're serving something else, like that quote I talked about, if your life is bent towards something else, controlled by anything other than God, that's not freedom, that's slavery. And the people, uh, the Canaanites, are serving these idols. They're doing some bad stuff. You can read further about it. There's, there's temple prostitution, where to get favors from their gods, you've got to have sex with temple prostitutes. There's child sacrifice, Where to worship this God, you've got to offer your child in the fire to be burned. And God knows if you're not going to break down those altars, you're going to end up worshiping at those altars. If you're not going to push that altar out of this land and out of your life, you're going to be sacrificing your child there for a God that doesn't exist. Which if you read the book, is something that happens. So it's not just that God wants to be Lord of our lives. It's that he deserves to be Lord of our lives and that we're actually free when he's Lord of all our lives. And so when he calls them and when they disobey because either they lack faith or the obstacles are too big or whatever it is, he can actually say, you say and you can't, but you won't. Why have you disobeyed me? Why have you done this? I just saved you from 400 years of slavery in Egypt and made you a people. So here's the, here's the powerful question, I think, for me and, and, and for you. It's a reflective question to think on. But where in your life has God commanded you something, commanded you to do something, and it seems difficult? Or it just seems really tough to do, or it kind of goes against your own common sense or the way you understand it or the people around you, the way they're doing that? Where has God done that, and where is God saying to you, you know, you, you cannot or you will not. You cannot, or you will not. And that could be a lot. It could be a lot. It could be a million different things, right? Maybe right now as I'm talking, the Holy Spirit has already put something on your mind that's in your life, and you know God's calling you to do it, but you've been making excuses, right? And I'm going to let the Spirit. I'm not let. God's going to speak to you, right? But if I if I could, I want to share a few examples of just things that we know that Jesus commanded us that are in the Bible that I know a lot of times we struggle with because they're hard, right? Jesus said to love your enemies. Jesus said to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And in the culture and the climate that we're in today, where people are drawing lines, where they're identifying enemies and where they are clashing in words and sometimes physically in battle, right? Are we loving our enemies? Are we finding ways to pray for those who persecute you? Maybe in our heart, well, no, if I pray for them, that means they won. (laughs) If I love them, that means they won and they get to feel like they're right. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Is it I cannot or I will not? Jesus says to forgive those who have wronged us. You know, Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant who gets forgiven of this incredible debt he can never pay back. And then he goes out and he strangles the guy who owes him basically 10 bucks. Right? That's not how we handle grace. That's not how we handle grace. Jesus says we need to forgive those who have wronged us. And as much grace as we've received maybe there's someone here today who you're not talking to someone across the room Are we forgiving those who have wronged us even though it's hard even though we have legitimate reasons Are we obeying God and letting him set us free instead of letting ourselves be enslaved Are fighting temptation and the Bible says we're in a battle. We're in a war with sin. And sometimes we don't act like we're in a war. Sometimes it can be like, well, I'm tempted, so I just have to do that. Anyone? Right? Sometimes we're not fighting the good fight. We're just like, I don't know. I don't know if it's gossip or rumors or something to do with money or if it's, Lust or sexual temptation or whatever it may be, there's something in us that can say, well, I'm already um, defeated from the beginning. But 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I have it up there, but not in my notes. Marco, can you pull it up? No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Amen? So even though when we're tempted, a lot of times it can seem like, I can't beat this. And, and I have to be careful here because I know that sin has addictive qualities and we wrestle with addictions. But I, I also know that God says there's a way out. And we don't just have to kind of lay over and let sin have its way in our hearts. We can fight it. We can pray. We can confess to a brother or sister. We can ask for help. Are we fighting temptation or are we just saying, I can't, right? All of us, it, it, here's the thing, all of us have failed God in some way like that, okay? Not, not preaching at you, I'll be the first to admit. There's, there's ways where God speaks to us, to me, and, and, and it's clear, but it's like, ah, oh, I can't do that. So if all of us had done that, what do we what do, we do? You know, because God confronts the people of Israel, and it's like, well, what are we? Where do we go from here? Right, and and that's where I want to talk about this quandary that we see in the scriptures. And uh, quandary. Maybe I'm just an old soul. I feel like that's like a old word. <laughs> Who uses quandary? Hmm, that's a quandary. Uh, but uh, quandary is. Uh, I have the definition. All right, uh, a state of perplexity or uncertainty over what to do in a difficult situation. Right? It's like what to do. Right? It's a practical dilemma. It's like if you ever go into a parking lot and there's an In-N-Out and a Chick-fil-A and Phil's barbecue. It's like, where do I go? Like, where, okay. No quandary for, for Mike. But for me, that would be a quandary. I would have to pray and fast and determine, determine which one of those to go-to, right? But we've got And and I know that God is all knowing and he's never, we can never do anything that stumps him. But I I want you to see the tension that the scripture shows us that we can uh, relate a little bit with what God says. Because um, basically, basically, if you look at verse one and then you look at verse three, God is saying, I said this, but I also said this. And in the middle of that, he says, why have you done this? Right. So what does he say in verse one? He says, I brought you up out of Egypt. And led you into the land that I swore, I promised, to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Right? I'm gonna be faithful to you no matter what. You are my people. I am faithful to you. Right? But then in verse three, he says, I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares for you. Which a snare is I'm a drummer, so I think of snare drum, but it's like a trap, right? A hunting trap. That the gods that you're refusing to drive out of this area will become a trap for you. And God is saying, why have you done this? And there's this dilemma of what is God going to do? Because I said I'm going to be faithful to you always, and I commanded you to obey me. But on the other hand, I said I'm not going to bless you if you don't obey me. So, we're kind of reading this and we're like, so is God going to be faithful to his covenant or is God going to be faithful to his covenant? (laughs) (laughs) What what does it mean for him? Another way of saying it is think of God's promises, right? God's made them promises. Are God's promises unconditional? Right? Like, you're going to get the promises no matter what, no matter how you act, or are they conditional? Well, as long as you obey and do what I said in the covenant, then you get the blessings and the promises of the covenant. Are we tracking? Another way of saying it, is God a God of love, all love, or is God a God who's just and a perfect judge? And there's a tension here in the narrative, and it's a tension that, that... This is the introduction of the book. It's meant to pull you through the book. And constantly as you're reading, you're like, what will God do? Like, is God going to forgive them and love them and like bless them even though they disobey? Or is he going to like do what he said and cut them off? Right? Because they disobeyed and they're clearly not obeying. And I want to ask you, how do you solve it in your life? When you look at the areas of, hey, God's called me to do this, but I'm not doing it. I'm not obeying. How do you solve it? Because there's ways that we read this. When we read the Old Testament, it typically kind of comes down to those, those two ways. And uh, one is a, is a more uh, liberal way of reading the scripture. Another is a more conservative way of reading the scripture. And I'm not saying liberal and conservative, just politics. Uh, I'm not trying to uh, go at that, but maybe it applies to that too. But I'm saying there's a way of reading it where, yeah, sure, God will always bless us as long as we're sorry. Right? doesn't matter what we've done, doesn't matter even though we're totally going against His will, as long as we're sorry, God's going to bless us. And there's another way of reading it where like God is only going to bless us if we do what He asked us to do. Because that's the blessings of the covenant, right? He's got a side to keep up and we've got a side to keep up. and He's not going to bless us unless we obey. And I'm asking, how do you solve that? How do you typically respond to that in your own life? Because how you Um, how you answer that tension in your own life will kind of determine whether your approach is more complacent towards sin. It's like, oh, we're just all going to sin anyway, so, but God's all loving, so it's just all gravy, right? Or you'll be on the other side and just burdened down by guilt and fear and not even really experiencing the freedom and the love that, that God says that He is and that we should have. Is that making sense today? And so that tension of, okay, what is God going to do? Because both of those are true, but neither one of them is fully true. God is loving, but God's also just. And if he's not just, then we don't have any justice in the universe. And if he's not loving, then we don't have love in the universe. It's all based in him. So how does it come together if they're not both fully true? And we don't really see that until we see it in Jesus in the gospel. The book of Judges doesn't even finish the tension. But when we look ahead, as we've seen the rest of the story, and we see Jesus on the cross, that's where we see God's perfect love, meeting God's perfect justice for us. You see, Jesus didn't just die because of Roman oppression. He didn't just die because his political views were offensive. He died, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God that when he went to the cross that the only one who never broke the covenant was punished as the covenant breaker for us Romans 3:26 and you can read this chapter it's it's amazing explaining the gospel to us but 326 says this and he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. He did it so that he could be the perfect judge and and what we see at the cross is God's perfect judgment for our sin, for your sin, for my sin. For all the times we've said, I can't do it, but it's really, I won't do it. We see God's perfect judgment against that, but he's not only the judge in the courtroom, he's the one who took on the penalty. When we look at the cross, we see, hey, I'm way worse than I want to tell myself. It's easier for me to say, well, I try, but I just can't. But no, 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 look at the cross. Look at the cross and see how serious your sin is and my sin is. But don't just stop there, look at the cross and see how much God loves you. Feel that. (laughs) That that his perfect justice was met on the cross, but his perfect love is displayed to us. And, And only when we look at that cross, just like the Israelites remembering Gilgal and God's goodness, only when we're looking at that cross will we really be free we see his, his love and his grace that, that we don't deserve and we can never repay, and yet he lavishes it on us. And we see his judgment is so great against sin that we can't be complacent with the sin in our lives. You know what I mean? If God was willing to die to save me from this, why should I be willing to live in it? <laughs> but we also see how great his love is that we can't be burdened by guilt and fear anymore. Does that make sense? We see that our obedience matters and God's grace abounds for all the areas that we don't obey. And yet our heart is drawn back to, we want to, we want to. And our I can't goes from a I won't to a I will. By faith, I will. Amen? Instead of, instead of, instead of I can't fight that temptation, it's I'll fight that temptation by faith. Instead of, I can't love my enemies, that's wrong. We'll go, I'll love my enemies by faith and I'll pray that they come to know the love of God like I do. Instead of, I can't forgive that person for what they did, it was too wrong. We'll go to, God has forgiven me of things that I shouldn't be forgiven of and I can extend that to them through faith. I'll give, I'll serve, I'll live for God. I'll give God my whole life, not just parts of it, not just some, but everything. There's an old hymn I want to close with reading. Um, It says, When I survey the wondrous cross, and I think we have it on the screen as well. I just want to read a few stanzas of that. It says, When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, and his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. It's my prayer for us today as a church, that we be honest with ourselves about the way that we fail, not try to cover it up and live with a mask on, but that we also say, no, God has given me the love and the power to live in faith. And say, I will obey by faith holding on to your grace, holding on to the cross. Amen?
2: Amen.
1: Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for a beautiful time of gathering with your people. I thank you for uh, your scripture, for your word, Lord, that that we can take something that was written over 3,000 years ago and that you speak uh, through it to us still today in a different language, in a different nation, in a different era. Lord, you speak to us today, and I thank you for your word that it's living and active. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would apply it right now, Lord. I pray for uh, each one that's here under the sound of my voice, Lord, that, that as they've heard these words, that there would be conviction, Lord, that you would highlight the areas of, of disobedience, uh, but Lord, that it wouldn't just be conviction and it wouldn't lead to, to fear and guilt and burdens, but that it would lead to, I can, I can stand up with faith because God has loved me so much. And I can say yes to his will, even though sometimes it goes against common sense because I know his heart is for me and he does not want me to be a slave to other gods. He's come to give me life more abundant, life to the full. And uh, Lord, I just pray for that word to, as it has gone out today that, it, that you um, would, would bear fruit with that word. You said your word will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose that you've sent with it, God. So I just pray that you bless us today, Lord. If there's someone here who their heart is being awakened to believe in you, if they've seen the cross for the first time and it's made sense and and there's been a burning in their heart, God, I just pray that you would regenerate and awaken hearts today, Lord. And if that's you and you're here today, you just just confess your sin to God and walk towards Him in faith today. And God, for those who have been in the church their whole lives, God, I pray that they maybe have heard something that was uh, from you that would convict and encourage and move them towards action. Lord, we come to you clinging to your grace and thankful that you're faithful and loving. And uh, God, we just say that we love you so much because you first loved us and you gave yourself up for us, Lord. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.